Well, good morning. I am glad to be here today, and um, thank you to Pastor Eric, who has uh, graciously allowed me to come and speak with you today. And may you bow your heads and let's enter into God's presence through prayer. God, we ask now that you would do what only you can do. Make your word come to life. Pray that you would allow us the ability, Lord, to get out of the way that you can control what is said, what is done. May your word accomplish what it's designed to do. As the rain comes from the sky and accomplishes your goodwill, so will your word do that in the hearts of the listeners and viewers as we begin to attempt to preach your word. Pray now, Lord, that um, change will happen in our hearts. Pray that we will be edified, some will be convicted. As we prioritize your word in our lives, that we may live it out so that you may receive maximum glory as our prayer in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may remember, uh, in a weird way, this guy uh, has been transformed, at least on the Beverly Hillbillies. Look at this picture. Uh, This is a picture of Jed. And uh, he was the star of the Beverly Hillbillies, a a series that ran for some time. And Jed had one uh, conundrum, if you will. His problem, his challenge, was that he didn't know how to adjust to this newly transformed life. Here you'll see an episode, the first episode, of Pearl trying to convince him that he has to leave his, whole, his old transformed life and migrate into this new transformed life, but he doesn't get it. Watch this. You're a millionaire. A millionaire. Yeah, that's what that Brewster fella kept calling me. I didn't know just how to take it. He made you rich. He? The richest man in these hills. Maybe in the whole state. Oh, Jed, you can have anything you want. Do anything you want. Go any place you want. Yeah, that's another thing he kept saying. He said he reckoned I'd be moving away from here soon. What do you think, bro? You think I ought to move? (laughs) Jed, how can you even ask? Look around you. You're eight miles from your nearest neighbor. You're overrun with skunks, possums, coyotes, bobcats. You use kerosene lamps for light. You cook on a wood stove summer and winter. You're drinking homemade moonshine, washing with homemade lye soap. And your bathroom is 50 feet from the house and you ask, should you move? Yeah, I reckon you're right. Man, be a dang fool to leave all this. Theme. Uh, That was the story throughout the whole series of Beverly Hillbillies. The paradox of Jed trying to move into his new Hollywood lifestyle from a poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed to a millionaire out in Hollywood, Beverly Hills, where swimming pools and movie stars. Today, as many as a lot of comic relief watching the Beverly Hillbillies, I wonder if non-believers watching us get comic relief of the irony of our lives as believers while we're trying to live in a new kingdom lifestyle, but we have not forgotten and we want to cling on to that old Jed lifestyle. 
today as we talk, I want to recognize that, yes, we all come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different uh, ethnicities, all of which shape our thinking, our perspectives, and our worldview. And by itself, there's nothing wrong with our culture, our racial, or socioeconomic backgrounds. But when the lack of our kingdom identity is not understood, and when we fail to realize that we must grow into our new identity as believers, and that we are charged to come together as one body in Christ, we fall into that old dead nature. I've realized that sometimes even believers are more harsh than non-believers in treating each other. Now, there's a saying in the evangelical world that evangelicals eat their own. Sad tragedy, but it's true. The question is, how can we develop a kingdom mindset? How can we move as one body, united in Christ, across different cultures, to show a world consistently that we can live out our faith and glorify God? Today, I want to take the time and talk about God's diverse church united as one. I want to look at God's plan as recorded by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesus. I want to look at how Paul highlights how to remove these barriers that get in the way of uniting God's people inside of his church. My prayer today is that someone online or here present, may experience and surrender to God's will and understand what he's calling us to and what he's given us, the riches of his glory, that we can see the benefit of how important it is to come together as serving as one body in Christ. Now, here's my warning. Some people are going to get this and others won't. Why? I believe the decisiveness of our response it's the scripture is always in line with the depth of our conviction about its priority in life. Let me say that again. The decisiveness of our response to the scriptures is always in line with the depth of our conviction about its priority in life. And so some will say, yes, I get it. Others will say, what is he talking about? When we surrender to our new identity in Christ and understand God's plan and the riches he's given us to accomplish our purpose, we can come together and unite as one body in Christ. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul begins by explaining to the believers in this Ephesians church, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the wor this world, according to the prince of the powers of air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them... We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, we have been saved and raised up with him and seated. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Purpose clause. So that in the ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us and in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Not of ourselves, it is a gift to God. Not as a result of our works, so that no one may be able to boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God had prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. Quick backdrop of uh, Paul's letter here to the Ephesians church. Um, easy explanation of how to understand the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul is writing to a church. The church is located in Ephesians. We believe that somehow Paul's protégés, uh, Aquila and Phil, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila really founded the church, but it wasn't official until Paul came around on his third missionary journey and solidified them as a real church. So, shortly after Paul's departure, shortly after Paul's departure, false teachings entered into the church. People start exegeting and misinterpreting the word of God and the culture, a culture filled in Ephesus where the temple goddess Artemis and what we commonly know as the Temple of Diana, all of the botchery that was in the church, outside of the church, came inside of the church. And now we have chaos and confusion, much like today, even in the church. Paul's writing this epistle to clarify the truth of God's word and the plan that God has given his church to let them know that they have to come together to live out what God has put in the truths of his gospel to come together as one body in Christ. The purpose of this whole book is about unity. It is the challenge. He's purposely challenging both Jews and Gentiles that they must live out their love according to what Christ has dispensed to them by coming together, being united as one. How do you, how do you come together? He explains that it can only happen by God working through Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So easy way to remember this. The book is about unity. There's six chapters in the book. There's, those books are easily, to, easily remembered by taking a, a sheet of paper, writing out, and put them in two columns. The first three chapters are strictly mainly uh, theological. The last three chapters are practical. And you can take each one of those words, if you want to, one of those categories, and you can hang on to one to divide however you want to divide it. it so in, in essence, if the first three, three chapters are about belief, then the second uh, the second three chapters are about behavior. You go on and on. First three are about calling. Well, how do you, how do you understand your calling? The last three chapters, you got to live out the conduct of uh, understanding your calling. If you believe the first three, which are about doctrine, then what's the duty that you have as an obligation of understanding the doctrine? Faith and function, learning and living. Here's what I like most apart. The first three, Paul pours out these Ephesians, the wealth of God and how much treasure he's given us and all those things he's departed in heavenly places. And if we stop there, that would be good. But then how do we walk in that wealth? That was Jed's problem. How do we walk understanding what God has given us? What we see here is pretty interesting because Paul now not only puts out how to understand the book and he's, he's, he's writing this awesome, incredible le uh, letter, but he gives two prayers throughout the book. The first prayer is found in the first chapter, somewhere around that 16th verse. And his prayer there is that they may understand what God has given them, all the blessings that God has given them. He, he pours it out clearly. And then the second prayer found in chapter three, he lays this out by saying, now that you understand, I'm praying for your understanding what God is giving you, what God has, what 
put in front of you. I want, I'm praying now that your inner man may be strengthened so you'll know how to use what God has given you. Simple as that. First prayer, God the Father may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Lord, show them how much they have in Christ Jesus. And the second prayer is, Lord, that you would grant them the power in the inner man to comprehend it. I love that Greek word, katalambato, to, to really fully embrace it. It reminds me of when I was growing up around, around seven years old uh, and my mother had left a legacy to all of us by silver coins. She'd give me about 20 silver coins. And these were silver dollars back in the day. These were like priceless. At seven years old, I had no idea. They looked like big fat quarters to me. Had no idea of the value. And so I took one coin one day and I went to the store and boy, the candy you can buy with one of those big silver quarters. And I spent it. And when I found out how much I can give for it, I came back the next day and the next day. And about five days after this, the store manager said, hey, something's wrong with this kid spending. These things are priceless. So he calls my mom and says, hey, I want to just give you a heads up. Your son is spending these silver coins. And when I got home, she calibrated my thinking. I learned the value of those coins. But at first, I didn't. And so when I didn't understand the value of them, I didn't know how to use them. But Paul is telling us what he's telling people in, in this church in Ephesus, unless we understand the value of what God has given us, we won't understand how to use what he's given us for the purpose he's given it to us. So it is here that we pick up the narrative between those two bookends, how to understand what God has given us and then how to use what God has given us. In the middle of that, Paul now opens to what I believe to get them to understand how to grasp what God has given us. He said, but first, we got to move some barriers. Jed had a barrier in front of him. Even though Pearl was trying to explain to him, his barrier, he couldn't see it. This leads me to what I believe are some of the same barriers that are facing the church today. The barriers that are facing the church. Why is it that churches can't come together? Why is it that we click and it seems like our own individual cultures take over the main culture of the Christian culture, and we can never come together. Here's why. I firmly believe that the issues facing us today, I call them four barriers to church unity. Number one, you can find this in Ephesians 2 when we pick up the narrative. Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. The first, the very first barrier to church unity is misinterpretation of our sin. Misinterpretation of our sin. What do I mean by that? Mission, how do we misinterpret our sin? Have you noticed sin is always the person next to you? Sin is always the next door neighbor down who has a problem with her son. Sin is always in that neighborhood where crime rates is at, at an alarming rate. Sin is never here. Sin is always out there. Even in the context of this church, what Paul is trying to get them to see is that, wait a second, you've forgotten. You've forgotten something. You're thinking that you have not come from sin. Wake up call. The Gentiles had forgotten. The Jews had forgotten. Paul says, let me get one thing perfectly clear. You are now high and mighty. You're a believer and you think you have everything going on for you and you're looking down on everybody else. But here's a friendly reminder. You were dead. Pause. 
dead. Well, how was I dead? Dead to God. And later he'll go on and explain to the Gentiles, you were cut off from the nation of Israel. Uh, Israel, you, you, you were cut off from the whole house of Israel. You were cut off completely. You had no access to God. Being separated from God is dead. You were dead. Well, how bad was it? Really bad. Now, I've never, I've never ever really experienced death. But Paul, Paul says that, he explains it. He says, you were dead not only to God, but you were dead, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So you were dead because you were going a different direction according to the, the drumbeat of the world. You were trying to keep up with the world values. And not only that, but you were walking into the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So I know now you understand how to waltz with Christ, but you were two-stepping when you were back in that old jet nature. Don't forget that. My near-death experience came again when I was seven years. I did some crazy things when I was seven. You probably can sense this. I was fumbling around in the basement. My dad had a lot of chemicals down there. And one day, I don't know, probably was, had a stomachache from eating all that candy I bought with those silver dollars. But I saw this bottle downstairs. And it looks like what I thought was an esophagus. But it was really a pipe that was swollen from a sink. And the picture was, it was a picture of Drano. And I'm thinking that was something to heal my stomach. Guess what I did? Chugga, chugga, chug. Rushed me to the hospital, pumped me out, pumped my stomach out, barely survived. Didn't know I was going to make it. Through God's grace, God's grace, no long-term damage. I hiccup every now and then, but other than that, grace. What Paul is trying to communicate here, that don't misinterpret your sin. We were dead, dead. Not near death, dead to God. But not only was he highlighting, we can, only, we can not only, one barrier is misinterpretation of sin. sin. Sin is not just out there. Sin is an enemy. And where is the enemy? The enemy is enemy. That's why David clearly says, Lord, teach me to know the truth when he sins in, in this atrocious sin when Nathan had to confront him. Teach me to know sin in the inward parts, Lord. I need to know the knowledge, the things that I cannot see, search me. Teach me know that real wisdom that you have. Second barrier, overestimation of our humanity. Not only can we not misinterpret the sin, sin is in here. This is where we have to start. But we can't have an overestimation of our own humanity. Paul says, among them, we too, he puts himself in this equation. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, the, the indulging desires of our flesh and of our mind. And by nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. Now he's lumping everybody together now. You'll see this played out again in Romans 3, which says, all have sinned, right? He, he puts that out there. It, it, what is he getting at? He's trying to make clear that when we are going on our own path and our lust take over, our flesh takes over, this selfish ambition that's hiding beneath the surface, we can't see. And he's saying, you know what? Watch that 
selfish ambition. Not ambition by itself. Ambition by itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Ambition, clearly defined, is, is to accomplish something, to, to achieve something. Nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes selfish ambition, there's a problem because selfish ambition is designed to accomplish something for the purpose of receiving personal glory for myself. Paul in his church, his letter to the church of Galatia writes, let's do nothing for vainglory. Later on, he explains that in the Bible, there are no allowances for self and indulging in self-ambition. He says, Clearly to the church in Philippi, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing, absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish selfish ambition is toxic to the church and it erodes the church body. When I seek my own personal will and try to accomplish what I want to do for my own vainglory, I am heading down a dangerous path. How do we know if we're operating on a selfish ambition versus holy ambition? Mature Christians make sure that they have accountability people that will share the truth with them. They will put themselves right before the scriptures and let the word of God speak to them. Pray scriptures like Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wickedness. Lord, clean me up. But for the rest of us, it takes some major storm. It takes some hurricane, other catastrophes. It takes a pandemic to get us to realize that our livelihood of self-seeking motivation is just that, all about us. It's not until the glory of our accomplishments are in jeopardy of going up in smoke that we realize God has nothing to do with this. So believers in Ephesus they were operating on those same principles, seeking their own will, trying to do something on their own power. And quite frankly, it led them down this physical path of chaos, confusion, and division. If we are trying to do these things, we're overestimating our own humanity. Here's the point he's making. He's first, don't misinterpret that you are dead, but don't think you got yourself out. No, you didn't. It was but God. God. I was um, in a position where <laughs> I graduated uh, from University of Chicago's campus at CTS and at my master's degree, I was filled with a lot of head knowledge. My ego was like this big and I wanted to um, uh, show everybody how much I know. So one day I was a part of this very sophisticated church in Chicago, high, high, highbrow church, uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, the, the ushers, the greeters, dressed every Sunday in tuxedos with white gloves. That's the church I was a part of. And so one day the senior pastor asked me to teach class. I was like, ah, now I can show everybody just how much I know. I got in the class and he had me teach on one of my favorite passages. I love Hebrew. And I started teaching Hebrew and I started breaking down the first chapter. I'm writing, saying, in the beginning of the scripture, I start saying, explaining how Job came from there. And everybody, standing ovation. Everybody's clapping and shaking my hand on the way out. And this little lady, Sister Stevenson, I'll never forget, at the age of 80-something years old, walked up to me and said, Sonny, I appreciate the fact that you know all this Hebrew. That's a good thing. But simply put, uh, I didn't come here for that. I came here to learn about Jesus. And my head shrunk. 
my lesson of humility was an incredible lesson. Never, ever put my self-ambitions above what God wants me to do. We are here for one reason only, the gospel of Christ Jesus. We are here to teach God's word, to live out God's word. And I don't care how much we have to be killed because in between our thinking of holy ambition, there's that selfishness, that in pride, and specifically pride plays itself out because Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a hearty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 11, 2 says that pride leads to disgrace, but humility comes from wisdom. And we do this in various ways. Maybe you don't do it the way I did it, but that pride is there. We need to keep it in check because that selfish ambition pushes that pride to the surface. And how does it show up? It shows up sometimes in our socioeconomics. We classify people, upper class, middle class, lower class. Upper class looks down. Lower class looks up. And that big chasm's in between. It shows up in our geographical. Sometimes we put where we're from. And I've learned that saying, you know what? I got here. I wasn't from Houston, but I got here as soon as I can. Why? There's rationale behind it. And nothing's wrong with all those things. Even when we, we flaunt our schools and our mascots. Hey, I'm an Aggie. I'm a Longhorn. Hey, Roll Tide, whatever. All those things are nice. There's nothing wrong with those things. But they are in a position where they, we cannot use them for our own selfish when we're one-upping people. That's what happens when it gets in the church. It causes division. And Paul, watch this carefully. Paul, he confronts Peter with the same issue. Peter, I've seen the vision. Peter fully understood what it meant when he, when he saw the vision of all the meat coming down and God tells him to eat, I can't eat. And God says, wait a second, I, everything I made is clean. Paul then meets with Cornelius in a tanner's house, which is un, just unrealistic for a Jew to go in a tanner's house. He goes in there and God opens up a new vision. Paul says, Peter says, now, oh, I got it. God has no respect of any person. He, he pulls anybody into his, he chooses. And if he got it, why is it that Pete, Paul has to check him in Galatians 2 and says, hang on, Peter. Wait a second. You came wearing Antioch, Antioch you were hanging with the Gentiles. <laughs> but when the brothers, the, the brothers and friends of James came down who were Jewish, you separated yourself from the Gentiles. He says, how dare you insult God and shame the gospel? Confronted him. Even in times in our simplest, most Intentional efforts, selfish ambition and pride forces us to go back to those old Jed cultures. Here's the pyramid right quickly. I'll show you something that really, hope it makes sense. He says, watch carefully. Your fleshly desires, that means our motivation was from the world. He says, your governance, you walked in those worldly values and you had the wrong source of, 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 of strength that came from the devil. So watch this. Source. Flesh, our desires are fleshly. Our governance, we're walking to a, the, the, the beat of the world. And thirdly, we're working on the wrong power. When all three of those line up together, they consume us. Don't mistake these independently. A lot of people from different theologies come with different things and they say, oh, you know what? My flesh is solely the desire. So I think I can kick this habit by changing the way I do things. How's it working out for you? Some people say, oh, you know what? The problem is just the world. If I avoid the world, there's no problem. So I abstain for anything man-made, right? And I get in these wagons, I do stuff, and I understand the way I have to stop from that. No, that doesn't really work either. While others say, you know what? What I call Flip Wilson theology, the devil made me do it. 
The devil made me do it. It's not until we understand how all three of these work together, the flesh, the world, and the devil, that we fully can comprehend how sin has put us in this depraved state and we fully comprehend it. So what do I mean? Well, not only do I have to understand what my sin is, that I didn't get myself out of that sin, overestimating my humanity, I have to understand God's love for us. Let me quickly get to this. Verse 4, watch carefully. God, being rich in mercy, hmm, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up. He seated us into heavenly places. Verse 7, that he made sure the surpassing riches of his grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Don't underestimate how much God loves us. How much does he love us? He died for us. He died for us. Rich in mercy, God's love toward us. If you ever take the time to go back and read verse chapter one and go down, you can't walk away with how much God loves us because it says, verse three, he blessed us. Verse four, he chose us. Verse five, verse four again, he predestined us. He made us sons of Jesus. He baptized us in in death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are now reigning in righteousness with him. But here's the thing I want to make sure that we don't miss, and that is the essence of he bestowed us, his grace upon us. And here's the most important thing, he redeemed us. No longer are we slave to sin. No longer are we in a position where we're facing condemnation. How much does he love us? Paul puts it plain, plain when he's talk, talking to the church in Rome. He says, no height, nor depth, no powers, no things present, no things to come, nothing no, any other creature can separate us from God. We cannot be ever separated. That's how much he loves us. Fourth thing, misconception of our position in Christ. Number one, misinterpretation of our sin. Number two, uh, overestimation of our humanity. Number three, underestimation of how much God loves us so much that he died for us. Number four, misconception of our position in Christ. This is a big one because this is where a lot of the vision takes place because Here, Paul says, verse 5, even when we're dead, what does God do? He made us alive. Our position first, he he shook us out of that state we were in. What did he do? He raised us. That's our position. He seated us. That's our position. Where? In heavenly places. That's our position. It's by grace. The word grace broken down simply means a divine standing. Our standing with God is it's, it's, it's the best you can get. And why is that so important? Because he, here's something I don't want you to miss. There is no higher position you can get. So let's do away. There's nothing wrong with titles. People say, oh, President Blocker, that's great. But guess what? This presidency will end it one day. If you're a father, mother, that's going to end one day. Whatever your titles you're going by, they're important. But nothing is more important than you are a child of the most high God. Nothing is more important than that. And we elevate anything above that. You've misplaced it. When we put anything in that perspective, we've jeopardized our real identity. I argue that when we put our spiritual identity as Christians, when it's not prioritized, it's forgotten or it's misplaced. How so? The Jewish church, they were warring against the Gentiles in the same church. They wanted to put their fact of their Judaism above Christianity. And what did they do? Jewish Christians 
They wanted to make the Gentiles Jewish Christians. They want to have them formulate themselves on all those ceremonial things like circumcision to make sure that they were really, really Christians. No. Please hear this. When, excuse the grammar, when our adjectival becomes the identifier of our Christianity, we've misplaced our identity. No Jewish Christian, no African-American Christian, no Anglo-Christian, no Hispanic Christian. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. When I put anything in front of describing what I am, it diminishes my identity. What Paul is saying here clearly, guys, know who you are. You are believers in Christ. The question I have for you is, is that enough? Is your identity enough? Ralph Cramden often used those titles. He watched Honeymooners. You see it clearly now, his chauvinistic, misogynistic push on women in the context of that. He was always, always downplaying Alice, and Alice would come back with a pun. Ralph said one day, Alice, I'm the boss. You're nothing. Alice, I'm the boss, and you're nothing. Alice, I'm the boss, and you're nothing. Alice said, so that makes you the boss of nothing. When we put titles, affiliations, fraternal organizations ahead of Christ, everybody can clearly see we're really inside of Christ, ahead of nothing. Christ is the highest we can get. Let me close on this note. How can we tear down these barriers? How do we move to the point of understanding that God wants us to unite? Number one, we got to remember that we were once dead in Christ. Number two, we have to re-examine how we became a part of his body. Number three, reflect on the purpose of Jesus Christ. And number four, recommit doing the works as one body in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you've done and how you've done it. We thank you for tearing down the walls that separate us from you and free us from the condemnation that we rightfully deserve. May you work in and through us for your glory. Unite us under the blood of Christ, as I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.